we're starting a new series, as Mike said. Uh, it's called Stories That Define Us. Stories That Define Us. Um, and this is, a, a tr- this is true. Um, stories do define us. The stories that we tell ourselves and tell each other, uh, the stories that we have lived, these stories, they give us an identity. Uh, they explain the world around us. They help us to understand ourselves and others. Uh, the stories that we tell ourselves make sense of the world or they make an effort to make sense of the world uh, or sometimes they give us reasons why the world doesn't make sense. And many of the stories that define us come directly from our experiences. Uh, the ways that other people have treated us tell stories of whether we matter or not, um, what our roles are in life, um, even whether or not the future will be any different from the present uh, or the past. Some of the stories that define us are sources of inspiration. They're actually like victories from the past that encourage us that we can do well, that we can succeed. There are other stories, though, that enslave us. Um, these are negative stories of our failures or of abuses of other people that convince us that we're not worth much, um, that we don't matter. And some of the stories that define us are true. Uh, the experiences we've actually had and the stories that go along those, uh, that explain those experiences are accurate. Um, but, but... Long before both CNN and Fox News and Facebook began to manipulate us with fake news, um, so long before fake news had a name on it, long before there was a story called fake news that could define what manipulative and um, one-sided, politically agenda-driven stories were on both sides of the aisle, long before that, we have long succumbed to believing fake news about ourselves. Um, There are stories that we believe, stories that define us that are not true. It's the voice that we talked about in the last sermon series, if you were here, that voice that says, you're not blank enough. Right? That story that tells us that you're not good enough, smart enough, skinny enough, productive enough, successful enough, attractive enough, popular enough, etc. That, that voice that tells us your life doesn't matter, that you don't matter. Um, that's a fake news story that often defines us. The Jews that were living during the days of Jesus had this problem. There were fake news stories that the Jews believed, and these stories defined them in ways that caused them to become people that you wouldn't want to be around. Um, They believed stories that tormented them internally and made them arrogant and self-righteous externally. And these stories define them in these awful ways that cause them to completely miss God, even though they were sitting in church every single week. And Paul, in the next section of Romans, Paul is correcting their fake news stories. That's what Paul's doing. Romans chapter 4 is Paul correcting fake news stories. And as we watch Paul correct the early Christian Jews and the Jews that weren't Christians, 
we're going to see and experience the wonder of the good news of Jesus because we're going to find that some of the stories they believed, we believe too. If you were here for Romans chapter 3, we just talked about justification and redemption and propitiation. These theological terms that are significant, they're long, they're confusing sometimes, but these words create this new reality for us. We called it the new now. And if you heard, in the first, if you were in the first century and you were Jewish and you heard Paul describe justification, the Jews reading this letter, hearing it read to them, they would have thought that Paul was crazy. They would have thought Paul was ignorant at best and stupid at worst. Because justification and good news, they, justification and forgiveness, they were good news for the Jews. But Paul said that the immediate application of justification, the first thing that Paul thinks about when it comes to justification is that this means that every single person from every single race or tribe or tongue or nation is equal in God's sight. And for the Jews, there is no way that Paul could be right about that. The Jews believe that the whole point of their scriptures, okay, the whole point of the Old Testament, right, this much of the Bible that you have in your hands or on your phone, this much of the Bible was designed to separate the Jews from the rest of the world, to make them different, to make them separate. And the Jews believe that the Old Testament meant that they were better than everyone else. But if what Paul said was right, then to the Jews, this means that the Old Testament is completely overthrown. Like the Old Testament is completely worthless. The Old Testament is useless. There's no point to it. That was the objection that they had. And Paul knows that his Jewish readers would have this objection. He knows why, because, well, he was a Jew himself. So he was Jewish, and he knew that they would object in this way, and so he addresses this objection. Okay, and we see this in chapter 3, verse 31. I want to pull it up. In chapter 3, verse 31, here's the objection. It says, Paul says, do we then overthrow the law? And the word, the, the, the phrase the law in Paul's writings almost always means the Mosaic law, or it's the Old Testament, okay? So he's saying, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So here's the objection, and Paul's response is, is I mean, to this objection that, wait, wait, doesn't this mean then that the whole Old Testament's worthless, that we've completely done away with, we don't need it anymore? Paul says, no, absolutely not. Seeing justification Creating a family of people from all over the world where everyone is equal in God's sight doesn't overthrow the Old Testament. Actually, it upholds the Old Testament law. It actually brings out the true design of the Old Testament. That's what Paul's point is at the end of chapter 3. And Paul doesn't just make this claim that, no, this doesn't contradict the Old Testament, because the Jews of Paul's day would have thought, oh, Paul, what you're saying then must be fake news. And Paul says, actually, no. No, no, no. He doesn't just make this claim, but he proves his claim. This is where Paul, like a great attorney, calls five witnesses from the Old Testament. Okay, there's five witnesses from the Old Testament, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And Romans 4 is the testimony of those witnesses. Romans 4 is designed by Paul to prove to everybody that what he has said about Jesus 
and forgiveness and acceptance and freedom that comes from Jesus doesn't nullify or contradict the Old Testament. It actually brings the Old Testament to its purposed conclusion and climax. Okay? And so, the first witness that Paul calls, the first witness, we're just going to look at the first one today. The first witness that Paul calls to the stand is Father Abraham. Had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Um, Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's just read this together. And we're going to walk through these verses one by one as we go through this today. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he's voicing the objection because he knew that the Jews were going to take issue. They were going to say, wait, hold on a second. We've heard things about Abraham. And Paul, what you're saying does not fit with Abraham's experience. Okay? Now, and the reason that Paul brings up Abraham is because he knows that the Jews of his day believed the fake news about Abraham. Okay, they had, there was fake news about Abraham. Let me give you some quotes. These are quotes that are in the writings. They're not in the Bible, but they're outside the Bible. These are quotes from the writings that will help us understand what people thought about Abraham, what the Jews thought about Abraham. And so they believed, this is a quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Okay, another place says, Abraham did not sin against you, God. And a third quote, Abraham obeyed the law perfectly before it had been given. So this is what people thought about Abraham. They believed that Abraham was saved and loved by God because of his good works. The Jews believed that Abraham was a perfect Jew. And this story that they believed about Abraham defined them. It defined them. Because if Abraham was saved and loved by God because he was the perfect Jew, what does that say about us? Right? That we need to be perfect Jews if God's going to love and save us. What they believed about God was so important. It's so important for you to know that this is what they thought. This is what they thought about Abraham. They thought that Abraham was saved because he was a perfect Jew. And so the idea then for the Jews was that, of course, we have to obey the Old Testament laws because Father Abraham perfectly kept the Old Testament laws. God loved Abraham because he kept the laws, and so we need to also. And the idea that Gentiles, right, the idea that non-Jewish people could be equal with the Jews was ludicrous. Right? The Jews' message of the rest of the world was that, look, God would love you if you would just become one of us. If you would become Jewish and obey God's laws, then God will love you too. And so this story about Abraham defined their lives and it made the Jews believe that they had to earn God's love with their works. Okay? This is what Paul says in verse 2. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about. So Paul is saying there, if it's true, if that's true, if that view of Abraham, if that is the story of Abraham, that he was righteous in all of his ways and perfectly obeyed the law before it was given, if that's true, then Abraham can in fact boast in his works. Abraham could have in fact boasted and rested in the fact that he was obedient to God and that's why God loved him. 
Paul says, though, but not before God. But not before God. Abraham could have boasted his works if he had them perfectly, but he doesn't. Not in God's presence, not before God, because this just isn't true. It's just not true. And before we see how Paul proves that it's not true, we need to realize that we also suffer from the same kind of fake news. There are things in our own hearts. Today, we're tempted to think that God doesn't love us if we aren't obedient enough. We think that God doesn't care about us if we have failed to serve him and obey him enough. Now, we don't think this because of Abraham, right? We don't have these stories of Abraham. I've never heard anybody describe, oh, well, Abraham perfectly obeyed, therefore I must. Like, I've never heard anybody in the church in the 20-some years I've been part of the church, say that. Um, no, we t- are tempted to believe this because sometimes when we walk into church, we have this sense that everybody else's life is so much better than mine, right? We have this sense that I know my own sins and my own struggles. I know the way that I am failing God and failing others, and I don't get the sense that other people are having that same experience, And if you've ever felt this way, then you've believed this fake news story that plagued the Jews. And your story that defines you might not have anything to do with Abraham, but you have this sense that God doesn't love you or God doesn't care about you because you're not good enough. The story that defines us sometimes goes like this. Well, yeah, God used to love you, but he's tired of you now. He's sick and tired of forgiving you. Yes, Jesus said that God would forgive seven times, 70 times, but you are so far over 490. Um, And when we fail, God must not love us anymore. That's fake news. Okay, sometimes when we ask God for forgiveness, the story that defines us is that God forgives us grudgingly. Well, he kind of has to, but he's not happy about it. He really wishes you would get your act together and stop needing so much forgiveness. Friends, if this is in you at all, if this, if this is in your heart or in your mind, when you confess your sins, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, You need to know that is not the truth. That is not the truth. You are suffering um, from the same thing that plagued the Jews in the first century. Um, And so how does God speak to this fake news? Right, well, God speaks through Paul. And look at verse verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, just simply, for what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? This is the one question that we have to constantly ask and answer. Because it's one thing for Paul to say, look, hey, or actually it's one thing for me to say, look, these stories that you have in your head, your heart, they're fake news. Right? It's one thing for me to say that it's fake news. But how do you know it's fake news? How do you know for sure that God really doesn't grudgingly forgive you? How do you really know for sure that if you're not good enough, God might not throw you away with the trash? 
Um, How do we know this? Well, the only way that you can know is if God tells you. And this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. I mean, if you believe anything that's not found in the Bible, you're on rocky ground. Okay, if there is any sort of story that you're telling yourself about yourself, about God, about the world, about life that is not in the Bible, then you can't know if it's true for sure. I was talking to somebody this week um, who was defined by the story that they had to interpret God's will from their circumstances. Desperately trying to figure out career path, relationship path, trying to figure out, like, what does God want from me? And the way that they were going about trying to discern God's will for their life was through circumstances. Well, I happen to see this person, and so this must mean this. It's like, okay, well, how did that go for you? Well, but then we got separated. And so... But the first experience like, really showed me that God's will is that we be together. And I said, how do you know it's not God's will that he was trying to separate you? <laughs> Maybe he wasn't in the coming together. Maybe he was in the separating. Right? How do you know? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. Um, if you don't ask and answer this question, What does the scripture say? You can never know for sure how God thinks or what God feels about something. Now, if you don't know how to get the answer to this question, like we're going to look at the answer to this question of the fake news story that the Jews believed, but if you're dealing with anything and you don't know how to come up with this answer to what does the scripture say, then ask somebody. Ask somebody who's part of the church and do the search together. Like, figure out together what does the scripture say. Um, there's all kinds of resources. If you need help, you can, you can ask me, you can ask a leader in the church, and we'd be happy to help you to learn how to study the Bible, how to get an answer to the question of what does the scripture say about anything. What's exciting is that when you involve other people in your search for what the scripture says, usually you end up with an answer that's fuller, richer, even more nuanced, and applies to lots more situations. So there's good, it's good to do this together in community. Um, So, but, um, and I would say too that if you want to live the abundant life that God has planned for you, you have to answer this question all the time. You should never feel ashamed. I don't know if you ever feel like this. Sometimes there's church people that can make you feel about like this where you don't know what to do and then you think, gosh, I really should figure out what the Bible says about this. And there might be people even in the church that'd be like, oh, well, okay. Like, you're one of those kinds of Christians. Um, I would just encourage you, don't don't ever be ashamed of asking that question and answering it. Don't ever be ashamed of asking someone who's giving you opinions, hey, do you have a chapter and a verse for what you're saying? Could you help me see where the Bible talks about this issue? Don't ever be ashamed of that, because Jesus is honored every time we ask this question. Um, And even as someone who, like, I've been living and breathing the Bible for more than 20 years, I still ask this question. I still get this question answered because this is the key for us to know God and to walk with him. And so, so again, what does the scripture say about Abraham and why God accepted Abraham? Well, the end of verse three tells us. 
It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed God. It doesn't say here, Abraham perfectly obeyed God. It says Abraham believed God and his faith is why God accepted him. You see that? Abraham believed God and it, his faith, his belief, was counted to him as righteousness. And so remember, the Jews, they were defined by the story that Abraham earned God's love. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says that Abraham didn't earn God's love. He believed God. And Abraham's faith is why God accepted him and loved him. And this quote at the end of verse 3, this quote comes from Genesis chapter 15, where there's this amazing story of Abraham and God And it shows how wrong it is to think that you have to earn God's love. Okay, I want to read the story to you, and then we'll talk about it. Um, God made these incredible promises to Abraham. And in verse 4 of Genesis 15, it says this. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he brought him outside. So this is the Lord bringing Abraham outside. He said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. So, no cities back then, okay? Think Julian. If you ever go up in the mountains in Julian at night, right? That's what we're talking about. No street lights, maybe a fire, but God brought him outside so that even the fires are gone. So in pitch black darkness outside, God takes Abraham and says, look up in the heavens and count the stars. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's how many kids, grandkids, great-grandkids you're going to have. Verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Verse 7, And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then Abraham asks the best question ever. I'm so glad he asked this question because I want to know this all the time. But, verse 8, he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God, I need assurance. Verse 9, And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So bring me five animals, two birds, three livestock. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Okay, so what this is, is Abraham's cutting these, the pieces of these, he's cutting these animals into two pieces, and then he creates um, a row. He creates an aisle. So like, like this. So there's these animals, half the animals on this side, half the animals on this side, and there's a way to walk through. Um, and there's a reason for this. I'll talk about it in a second. Verse 12. Um, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. He was called Abram back then. God changes his name to Abraham in chapter 17, two chapters later, which we're going to talk about because it's really, really, really important when we get to Romans 4, verses 13 to 16. So we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, But he's Abram right now, but he's the same guy. So behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But 
I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. What's that nation? It's Egypt. So, so God is predicting the Exodus 400 years before it happens. Okay. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So remember the aisle that was made down in between? So now we have Abraham sleeping, and these are pictures of God, the smoking pot and the furnace. Um, that they, they went through the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So God makes this promise to Abraham. What this, this is a ceremony. It's a covenant-making ceremony. Okay, God is making a covenant. He is promising to Abraham that what he, well, that what he promised, that he will fulfill. Okay, so God promised this. Abraham believed it. And because of Abraham's faith, he was accepted by and loved by God. That's it. That's it. That's what Abraham's responsibility was in order to be accepted and loved by God. He had to believe. He did believe, and so he was accepted. Now, this creates a radical difference in the stories that are being told about Abraham. Okay, And this is where Paul goes next in, in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Let's look at those. <clears throat> Paul says, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So stick with me here. I think you can get this. I don't think this is too complicated. Verse 4 says, if you've got a job and you have works to perform, and you perform those works, and you receive something in exchange for the works that you do, then what you get, that money that you get for the works that you do, is a wage. Right? Most of us... A lot of us, you know, go to work. A lot of us get paid for our work, and that's a wage, okay? And so, um, but there's another way of doing things when it comes to God. Now, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so here we have Paul expressing both the fake news that the Jews believed about, God, about Abraham and the gospel truth. And both of these stories powerfully define us. One is a blessing and the other one's a curse. Okay? If the story that defines you is that you have to work for God's love, that you have to earn God's love, then that story means that you have to be good enough and you have to stay good enough to be loved by God. This creates, as we've talked about over and over and over again, this creates this unending spiral that dominates you and it never lets you go because you never feel like you're finished. There's always more that you need to do to stay good enough. And if you slip up and you fail, then you're out. And so if you want to have the fake news story of Abraham that says you have to earn God's love, it will define you as someone who also has to earn God's love and you will never ever, ever rest. But 
But if we are defined by the story that Abraham was loved by God because Abraham believed God and trusted in God, then the story of your life is one of acceptance. Then your life is defined by being accepted by God. So before you do anything, before you obey any command, before you do any kind of work for God or for someone else, you are already loved and accepted. It's done already. This means that you then don't have to be good enough. Doesn't this sound like the good news of justification that we talked about in the last series? Isn't this exactly the same kind of message that comes when you realize that God will accept you as righteous because of the faithfulness of Jesus? That's Paul's point, right? The whole point is that if it's true in Jesus, Abraham shows that this has been true all along. And so Paul is proving that what he's saying about Jesus, what he's saying about the gospel is true now because of the faithfulness of Jesus. But it's been this way forever. God has always dealt with his people like this. God's people don't work for salvation, but instead they believe in a God who will justify the ungodly. And I love this phrase. I love this because this shows us the content of our faith. Okay, it's not just that we believe in God in general. But no, 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 we believe in a God who will justify the ungodly. We believe in a God who will see the truth of who we are and what we're like, good, bad, and ugly. And he is still willing to forgive and accept. He's still willing to accept us and to love us, even with our faults, even with our flaws, even with our failures. He justifies the ungodly. And so this creates an environment where, friends, you can be honest about yourself. You don't have to hide your failures because you trust in a God. You believe in a God who accepts you even though you're ungodly. And so we should mourn over our sin. We should be sad about the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness that we bring into the world. We should be broken over the way that we hurt other people. And the key to dealing with all of that, though, is to be honest before God. Because when we're honest before Him, He begins to work. He justifies us. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He showers us with a love that does change us from the inside out. And so in the ceremony of Genesis 15, um, if you remember it, what went down the aisle? Do you remember that? What was it that walked down the aisle? The fire and the torch, or the torch and the smoking pot, right? Right, so you got cloud and fire, which for Bible trivia people or people that like to see connections is not unlike the pillar of cloud and fire later when God brought Israel out of Egypt, but that's another, that's something that's just free. Um, <clears throat> God walked down the aisle between the animal pieces. It was very irregular, 
because this was a covenant-making ceremony. This is a covenant-making ceremony. Normally in the ancient Near East, when two people were going to make a contract and sign on the dotted line, um, they didn't have a whole lot of paper back then. Um, and so this is how they would make an agreement. And what they would do is they would cut these pieces of the animals, and the two of them, the two parties to the covenant, would actually walk down the aisle in between these pieces together. And as they walked down the aisle, both would declare what they were committing to doing. That's not what happened in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God walks through the pieces of the animals. The, the animals are significant because what the person in the party is saying is that if I don't fulfill my obligation in this covenant, then let it be done to me what's been done to these animals. So they're saying like on pain of death, I commit to this. And yet God alone walked through the pieces of the animals. God alone made a promise to Abraham. What was Abraham doing when God was walking down the aisle? He was sleeping. He was sleeping. The first time somebody helped me understand this covenant-making ceremony, I was floored. I was floored because this is exactly what Paul is saying about Abraham. He's not working. He's not trying to earn God's love. He's not trying to earn the promises of God. He doesn't work. He's asleep. He's asleep. But instead, he believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. And so his faith is counted as righteousness. Man, this is everything. This is everything. God is walking through the pieces and he's saying, if I don't fulfill this promise to accept you, to love you, to be your God, to have you as my people, you and your descendants, if I don't do this, then let it be done to me as it is to these pieces. And what we find out later what Paul now knows with crystal clarity is that God walked down the aisle. He walked in between the pieces. God made the covenant, committing himself to being faithful to deliver on the promises. Abraham and all of his descendants failed in one way or another. All of Abraham's descendants, Abraham himself, failed to be all that God called him to be. And yet God was cut into on the cross. So God alone took the punishment. God alone took the sanctions or the penalty of the covenant. And God declares Abraham and anyone who believes in him to be righteous. This is justification. Friends, this is a story that needs to define us. This is the story where we are asleep and God is taking the oath, where God is committing not just to his own, to, to take on, uh, he's not just committing to fulfill his own promises, but he is committing himself to suffer if we break our promises. This is a gift. 
I mean, this is grace. Can you see the radically different story that the scripture tells about Abraham versus the story that the Jews were telling about Abraham during the first century? These stories define us. Um, We could say it this way, that work, if you work for it, work means wages. Okay, work means wages and that God is an employer. Okay, because your story is going to define how you relate to God. And if you have to earn it, then God is literally your boss and he is waiting for you to do all that you're supposed to do and then he'll pay you. That means that God is your employer. And you think you have to be perfect, you have to be clean, you've got to be good enough to be used by God. Good enough to be accepted by him, good enough to be worth something in the world. But faith means family. Faith means family, and that God is a father. Father in the best sense of the word. Because they're the one who doesn't work, but treats God not like an employer, but as a father. His or her faith is reckoned as righteousness. And so to get into the family, you don't work, but you believe in God who justifies the ungodly. And what this means is that God is deeply, personally involved in our lives when we trust Jesus. God is not a force out there. He's not an employer waiting for you to fix. He's not a quality control person who's leaning over your shoulder, pointing out your flaws. God is a father who loves you, accepts you, wants to teach you and help you to live out the fullness of all that he has in store for you. And it starts with faith. He's on your side. He's on your side. The Jews corrupted Abraham's story, and Paul is resetting it. And we find that Abraham's story is the story of the gospel. And what are we supposed to do? Well, today, I want y'all to sleep. I just want you to sleep. Don't do anything. Just sit. Sit in your chair and receive this gift of God's grace. Um, there will be change. You will be transformed, but not to earn something before God, not to try to secure his love. All of the change, all of the transformation comes because you've been loved by God already. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus has done everything that we need to be accepted by God. You need to receive that. This is where hope comes from. Hope that you might be different does not start or end with you. Hope that you might change actually comes from the love of God that transforms you. And so you need to believe this. We'll talk about change. We'll talk about transformation. There's good news there too. It's not that this is good news and then, well, then the hard stuff's coming. No, no, no. There's good news when we think about what Jesus does in us, not just what he does for us. But today, today, I want you to receive this gift. 
and sleep in his perfect faithfulness. Let's pray together. God, we would not believe this is true if the scripture didn't say it was. In all of us, there's this tendency to want to earn your favor. And some of that, Lord, comes because we don't want to take advantage of your love for us. We don't want to live and act like, um, like we aren't overwhelmed with gratitude. But we do want to let go of any sort of works now, God, and just and, and rest in the finished work of Jesus. He is our cornerstone. It's his perfect life. And so, God, we, we don't work, but we believe in you and are overwhelmed that you would forgive us for our ungodliness. Thank you for being a father to us for loving us and accepting us, for not beating us up, for not being good enough, but for loving us as we are and working in us, working through us, teaching and instructing with patience and gentleness. God, you are perfect in the ways that you deal with us. And so help us to rest in this grace. And Father, for those who are here and aren't Christians, or would you help them understand that this is not just too good to be true, it is true. Help them to see that all their efforts to try to earn your favor are unnecessary. Draw them near, show them your love so that they would see that in Jesus they have forgiveness and acceptance with you. And let all of us, God, let this, your acceptance define all of us so that all of our efforts would be loving you back because you've loved us so much. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.